Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the uh, Mouthy Money podcast. Uh, today, we've got another uh, excellent guest uh, joining us, uh, Sarah Marks. Uh, this is a bit of a follow on this week uh, from a recent podcast we did with Sonia Rack, who was a journalist from FT Advisor, who, who was telling us about her uh, book about financial education for kids. Uh, and following that on, uh, Sarah is here today to tell us about her organization, Red Start, which is dedicated to financial education. Uh, Sarah, do you want to just give us a quick introduction to yourself, who you are? Yes, sure. Well, first of all, <laughs> thanks very much for having me. Um, Pleasure. Yes, I'm the CEO at Red Start. Uh, I have been the CEO for two and a half years now. And prior to that, I've spent most of my life in the financial services industry. Um, most recently, before I joined, I was Global Head of Client Service for Insight Investment, and I worked for Insight for about 16 years uh, in London and latterly in, in New York. Okay, so what, um, just on that background point, uh, Insight Investment, what kind of uh, work does that company do? Well, the main, um, their main product when I was working there was LDI, Liability Driven Investing, um, okay. and Fixed Income really those were the okay. two kind of focal uh, so quite uh i, I mean i only ask because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a change uh coming coming and doing red start which is a slight change of pace obviously that's quite heavy financial services stuff but let's ju jump into the most important bit which is uh red start so tell us about red start uh where it began uh where your involvement um you know kind of started and and and, and what what it is today yeah so um so Red Start is a national charity that delivers financial education for primary school children in areas that are more disadvantaged. So these are children that go to schools in communities of greater disadvantage. And um, the reason that we're working in those particular areas is that we have a very clear set of objectives. Um, the first is that we are working towards producing an impact, a longitudinal impact study, which the government say is what they need in order to be persuaded that teaching primary school children about how money works um, actually has some value, not just in terms of their levels of financial literacy, but also around things like their confidence levels in their future lives and potentially the impact it can have on other cross-curricular activities. Um, we also are focused on um, demonstrating, providing a blueprint effectively to the government around how you could scale that up, because that, because that has been one of the other challenges that um, the, the government has faced, and um, explaining to them how to make it sustainable over the long run and embed it into school life. So we are working with 65 primary schools around the UK, and um, this is the second year that we have been operating our Change the Game programme. The charity has been in existence since 2012, but I became CEO two and a half years ago. And prior to that, I'd been a volunteer. And one of the things that I was struggling to convince myself about was we were doing a lot of one-off activities, going and seeing children in high numbers, but we were seeing them once for maybe three, four hours. They were having a great time. They definitely knew more at the end of the workshop than they had done at the past, at the start. But I was really 
struggling to be convinced that that was going to change the way in which they managed money as they grew up. So now what this programme is about is we see the same children every year from reception through to year six, P1 to P7 in Scotland, um, usually twice a year. And alongside that, we also have a Red Start Bank. So when we aren't there, even when we're, we're seeing them twice a year, we can't be there all the time, of course. But we have a Red Start Bank, which the children use for 15 minutes a week. And that combined with the lessons that we're delivering in class gives them the average child about 10 hours of financial education a year. And the way the Red Start Bank works is that they can earn Red Start pounds for taking part in quizzes in the app. So there are one set of quizzes that are around incentivizing them to practice their basic arithmetic. And the other quizzes are about money. So we do before and after uh, activities around our workshops. And then we do uh, one uh, quiz about a month after, to, which tests their application of that learning. And then another one about three months later to see if they've actually remembered what we taught them. And that helps us to understand how well things are being absorbed and what we can actually um, build on. And the, um, the bank app has a current and a savings account in it. So the money they earn goes into a current account and it will stay there unless they move it into the savings account. And we're doing that because we're trying to create um, muscle memory around the fact that what, where, whatever you do, wherever your money comes from, you want to make it work for you. So actually, don't just leave it in the account it gets put into. Think about how you can generate more income. So they move the money into the savings account, and then there is a shop in the school which um, has real-life items in it that they can buy with their money. So there are um, small ticket items that they can buy once every three or four weeks. That would be things like fidget spinners, bottles of bubbles, stationery, that kind of thing. Um, and then there are bigger ticket items that they have to save up for, which might mean they might have to save for a half a term, maybe even a whole term. Um, and that would be for things like Lego sets, Barbie dolls, sports kit, football, cinema tickets, that sort of thing. So the idea there is that we're, um, we're creating an environment where they can experience the consequences of their own decision making in a real life environment, but one that is safe and where we can explore with them the things that make you want to lower budget or the things that, what, that make you not want to hold on to your money and save for something so that they start to understand what's going on in the dynamics of their own personalities and the way they behave around risk and so on. Um, so that's how the bank app works. Um, and actually, we, we in the summer, we're going to start um, a new program related to it where we are going to encourage the year six children, P7 in Scotland, to apply for jobs in the shop. So there'll be two jobs. There'll be a, a shopkeeper job and a warehouse manager job. And they will write their CVs, apply for the jobs. They'll all obviously get a shift. <laughs> and then for doing their shift, um, they will be paid in Red Start pounds. But it again reinforces the idea that you can choose two different jobs with different skill sets. Um, the warehouse job will all be about, you know, managing orders, making sure what's been delivered matches what we've, we've said we want, all that kind of thing. And the shopkeeper job will be managing the customer's dealing with the adjustment to the accounts, that kind of stuff. Um, but it also reinforces the idea that 
you know, you commit to something, you go to work, you earn your money, and then you have the pleasure of being able to spend that. Um, because particularly in the communities that we're working in, we are now uh, working with children who are in families that are third or fourth generation that have never actually gone to work. So the whole idea of getting up and opening a laptop or going out um, of the door and getting the bus somewhere or something is something that these children will not be familiar with. And, you know, that, that it's not even just their immediate family. The, all of the people around them, are, the majority of them are in the same situation. So what we're also trying to do is raise aspirations and also create in the children a level of confidence in their engagement with money so that they don't feel overwhelmed by it and they are confident enough with the terminology and the way it works to be able to start to think, well, may actually, do you know what? Maybe if I didn't understand that, perhaps it's because it's been explained badly, not because I'm stupid or I don't get it or I'm no good at maths or whatever narrative they start to tell themselves, that actually they should feel um, enabled to actually, you know, question and challenge and ask more um, and and feel comfortable that they have the the right to do that. Um, so the that's you know that's a key part of the, of the program too. Um, and we take in corporate volunteers who come and work with us in the schools, which also helps because they're meeting people who are working and they start to realise that this is not some sort of alien species. This is actually people just like them and that they could imagine themselves going and sitting in an office beside that guy or that girl. And, you know, they talk to them about the kind of things they do. And, and when they get to year six or P7, we take them into an office and run the workshop there, which is also really good for them because you're taking them into an environment that they would otherwise probably never even think that they would be able to yeah. visit. The, um, I, the, I, the, the resources and the ideas and, and things that obviously Red Star's providing, it sounds fantastic. Um, really interactive, really like engaging. And I, I like that kind of role play idea where you kind of get them used to the idea of doing, doing those things. On a, I mean, just pulling back on it slightly, I don't kind of, because this is because I remember when I used to work at my, my old magazine I used to work for, we had a personal finance teacher of the year awards we used to run. And I remember the problem we always used to have with that is actually finding teachers who were teaching personal finance to enter mm -hmm. the competition. At a kind of national level, a curriculum level, I guess it different, differs by regions and that kind of thing. But what is there in place? Like what, are, what, what is happening in schools today uh, that, that, that is a baseline? And then obviously are, are, there are teachers out there who are doing their own thing, I guess. It, it, how kind of far away are we from that kind of you know, optimum scenario? Yeah, well, first of all, what I would say is this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, the community of schools is a very, very rich, wide-ranging community. And the industry has a number of um, very effective delivery partners in it alongside Red Start. And they are all doing things slightly differently and, um, and operating to support different age groups and different segments of society. So I think um, what I would say is we are working with the schools that, that are operating in the lowest income deciles effectively as communities. 
it's absolutely the case that what you need in the way of support, the level of resources, the time, the, the, the people you need in the room, the number of people in the room, is very different in a school at the bottom level of income, level, income decile 1 as compared to the top of income decile 10, for example. You know, even within income decile 1, you will find um, variations in terms of what... Um, how how well uh, prepared for school the children are and how able they are to engage, how, um, how many of them are able to concentrate for two hours and sit and, you know, they move around as part of the workshops, but, you know, are, are able to absorb information for that length of time. So there are definitely lots of things already going on in schools. It's not the case that, that there's nothing, but... The most recent update that the Money and Pension Service did last year, um, which was following up on the fact that secondary school um, financial education had become part of the curriculum uh, just before the pandemic. So I think it was 2018, actually, that was that was brought in. They did a follow up on that last year and and the numbers of children or young people that recognised receiving a meaningful financial education had not moved in that time period. It was like 47% in 2018 and it was 46% last year or something along those lines. And, you know, um, I think what that tells you is that just putting it on the curriculum is not enough. Mm. What the feedback we've had from teachers in the surveys that Kings have done with our our teaching community, has been that there are three key things they need. Time, uh, resources, and um, and support, effectively. Um, and that will vary from school to school. So I think whatever solution we end up with, there needs to be the flexibility for the school to pick the right provision for that school. Um, and, it, and it probably needs to be some sort of... Um, approved set of, uh, of resources and providers which with some sort of high-level summary that's done for them. Because one of the problems that the teachers have at the moment, honestly, is that there is no shortage of content. And actually, the problem they have is they even if they decide they're interested, trying to find out who to go to and who does what and what is the difference between offering A and offering B and what would, what would be better for me. That in itself is a huge piece of work for them. And it's very difficult for them to actually get to the point where they feel confident enough to say, oh, yes, that's the best one for me. So there's definitely a piece of work to be done, I think, to gather up a number of of providers in the space and provide some sort of summary on maybe the DfE website or something that gives Mm -hmm. the teachers the, the high level summaries, the differences between them. And then they will be able to more readily choose, you know, what works for their for their school. So the the I think the longitudinal study that that you're doing is sounds fantastic. I mean, a lot of the kind of reading I've done in the past and, and more recently about financial education, it seems like, uh, well, it's just not. It doesn't feel complete enough necessarily. You know, 
how how effective is it what's the right thing to do and that kind of thing so i think it's really laudable doing that kind of longitudinal you know pr let's prove once and for all how much of a difference it, it really does make to these people to these ch children's lives um yeah. obviously we've got a little while there's a there's a while to run on that isn't there um so there uh, we'll we'll get some snippets as we go but i think um yeah i i really really like that um especially i mean you know the more we can prove that it's important the better right do you think i mean obviously when you have that kind of proof in your hands and it's going to take time for that to come do you think government is going to sit up and listen do they listen now uh do they take you know it, what is their kind of position as it stands well just recently there's been um a real uptick in uh in activity and interest in terms of what we're all doing in this industry um so there's uh, a, a select committee that is actually open for evidence and submissions right now. It closes at the end of the week, um, which is all about looking at how financial education in schools works and how you could uh, improve on, on what's there at the moment. Um, so that's going on right now. Uh, there are lots of people who are submitting evidence for that. So that's going to be quite an interesting um interesting process in itself. Um, the difficulty I think has been up until now from my point of view, uh, that my experience has been that there has been a lot of conversations, round tables and different people from the treasury and different areas being interested in what's happening. But the, the challenge seems to be converting that into action um, essentially and a plan and a strategy. And honestly, my, although I work specifically in primary schools for the reasons that I've been describing, um, the aim is for us to try and get traction as far as all 20,000 primary schools in the UK are concerned through the process I've described. Actually, my belief is and my, what I'm advocating for is that we need a lifetime savings initiative and, and financial planning initiative, essentially, as a strategy if the government really believes in helping people through the process of managing money through their lives, it's not just about seeing them in primary school or seeing them in primary and secondary or seeing them through to the end of university age or whatever. Actually, what we need is regular milestone check-in points, a bit like, you know, as a woman now, um, the NHS contact me at various points through my life and say, oh, you're now this age, you need a screening for this or a checkup for that, whatever it is. There needs to be something similar for people around their financial well-being and health. And whether that involves the Citizens Advice Bureau or, or other um, you know, groups that are already in place, that, where the frameworks are already there, but some way of engaging with people on a regular basis to see whether they are broadly on track because we have got we've got three big problems to tackle i think we have very low financial resilience you know one in four people don't have enough money in their bank account to survive the car breaking down or the washing machine breaking or whatever we have serious pressures on families now around housing um, you know, if you're renting, it's too expensive. If you're paying mortgages, that's going up. And rising inflation and interest rates haven't helped the people that are um, in the worst of situations. Um, and then also, 
with the change in the pension scheme structures, we need people to understand that there has to be a long-term savings plan for their future because leaning into the provision that's done through companies currently through auto-enrolments and thinking that some magical actuary has calculated what you need to save to be comfortable and just doing that and nothing else is not going to be enough, particularly when, you know, the state system is already slated to rise, the, the age is already slated to go to 67 and 68. By the time the kids that are leaving school now get to that age, it'll probably be 70. And who knows what actual amounts will be there to be paid out at that point. Um, and, the, you know, the, rely, the, the kind of self-provision element of things is, is becoming a bigger and bigger part of these children's future lives. And yet, I don't think enough young adults and children are having that explained to them that, you know, this is on you and, you know, the, the, the decisions you make in your 20s and 30s will determine the life you lead when you are in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and, and that I, I feel really passionately about that. I can see it. I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting issue and... You look at what gov government initiatives in the past, and it's kind of been haphazard, hasn't it? There's no, I mean, I think yeah. that's why auto enrolment was seen as a such big success is because it really was a, a pivotal change in the way in which people were encouraged to make long term savings by pushing, you know, auto enrolment through workplace providers. Um, but it's kind of like those those schemes and stuff have been lit, little and disjointed. I mean, we had like child trust funds. What was that? Twenty years ago now, maybe yeah. they're all starting to come of age now. I mean, it seems like to me when I first heard about child trust, I thought that's a great idea. You know, these these kids are going to get you know and uh, a little kind of endowment when they when they become adults and they can choose what to do with that. But it it kind of never you know, met its potential or it didn't last that long. You've got other ones like help to save scheme, which is a great scheme, which nobody, nobody uses it. You know, it's so good. But nobody really uses it. Uh, it doesn't get talked about enough. I think the government, I've seen the government try and talk about it and publicize it, but it doesn't get picked up. Um, and then you could just kind of have the constant chopping and changing, don't you? And, and, and there's no continuity. It, it, yeah. The government can't do the long-term thinking. So how are we supposed to do the long-term thinking? Um, but that's really interesting. I, I think um, in terms of, I, 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 do you think there's a lot that can be done through workplaces with that to extend that kind of auto-enrollment? And we get into the conversation around kind of advice gap and stuff like that there, don't we? And, and how employers yeah. can help. Yeah, I think I think definitely more can be done. I mean, it's happening, starting to happen. A lot more mm -hmm. employers are starting to put things in place for uh, their staff to have um, consultations with advisors or um, and people who can talk to them about and where they can ask directly personal questions as well as go to group events, which I think is absolutely you know a good starting place. But th that has to be a part of this long term strategy around everything and that's where the leadership has to come from the government i think is that yeah. this has to be done in, in conjunction with the industry and with you know with what we do in schools it needs to be a step by step by step staged kind of process with one strategy that guides people through this whole minefield um 
because it is difficult. You know, people, I know myself, I would, I would, when I think about looking at options with money and I'm coming now nearer to the end of my working life and starting to think about my future when I'm not working and it's just mind-blowing. It's so exhausting, like looking at all the different options, even when you start thinking about, well, should I try and find a better home for the money that I've got saved? And it's so off-putting because you don't know who you can trust. You don't that there's so many different fragmented products and it's very, it, it becomes over, overwhelming fairly quickly, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see that's why so many people in this country just leave their money in short-term savings accounts, which is not the right thing for them to do, but that's what they're doing. And I think it's a, a direct result of the fact that they've not been given the confidence around speaking about and handling money when they were young, combined with the fact that the industry doesn't, isn't helpful when it comes to that side of things. Yeah, thinking, thinking about the uh, financial services industry, actually, it's an interesting point to kind of um, uh, move on to how kind of financial services operates. I think for me, there's two sides to it. The first, which I'll, I'll ask you is, do you think financial services needs to do more to simplify what it offers so that because obviously education is really important but then there's also something to be said for not having products that are so complex that people have to take really complex advice to 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 figure out what they're going to do with it right like can financial services try and simplify more uh, to make things easier to understand in the first place um and can what can then financial services, and I guess it varies by kind of the type of financial services we're talking here, but what more can they do to help that education uh, and and be a part of the solution, I guess? Um, yes, I, I think definitely simplification around products, terminology, all that sort of thing, um, it, you know, is is hugely helpful. Honestly, I don't think anybody really understood what was happening when the DB and DC change kind of went through. And um, the reason there wasn't the sort of outcry there probably should have been when all of that was happening is because people didn't understand that this change, what that change actually meant in real terms. Um, And this is where I think using, setting these these sort of systems up, you know, you were talking about auto-enrolment before and I think there are some terminologies and some arrangements that have been put in place that are almost too comforting. So, you know, using the word pension for both defined contribution and defined benefit, it's it's providing a level of security and comfort in people's minds because it conjures up the idea of grandma and granddad that you knew or know, you know, who are quite happily managing on the money they've got. And you think, well, I've got a pension, I'm fine. auto-enrolment, you know, well, I'm paying everything that I'm being told to pay, so I'm sure everything's going to be fine. It's, it's, not, um, it's not actually the, the case. And really what you've got is a lifetime savings plan. That's what you've got. And what you do and how you manage that and what you pay into it, it's not some magical thing. It's, it's actually just that. Um, and so I think that definitely helps if we're more straightforward about things like that and then as you say the complexity of products you know now the whole thing is about ESG and 
you know, whether you are concerned about where the money is going and investments underlying it and all of that. And it, it, everything, it's good for people to have choice, don't get me wrong, but I think there are, you've got all different providers to start with. And then within those providers, you've got all the different sorts of products they're offering, all the different risk ratings and everything else that go with them all. And I think the reason, and I do believe this, the reason that so such a high percentage of the population just stick with short-term um, savings accounts is because they understand them, their cash is in, you know, their cash is in an account with a name they probably recognize, Bank, it's got bank or building society at the end of it, and it pays an, an interest rate. They understand how that works. And so they're like, I, I feel worried that if I do something else, it, there's going to be a bigger risk. And I think the trouble also is that whenever there's any publicity about anything to do with investments, it's always on the negative side. It's always about, oh, look what happened with Neil Woodford's fund or look what happened, you know, some all stories about these people have lost their money and their life savings here and there. That's what goes in the press. And so that's what people read. And so it starts to become the narrative that, well, the last thing you want to do is do anything like that because I read in the paper that, you know, 15 different people gave an interview saying about how they lost their life savings with, with, an investment that and now the FCA is looking into it and all the rest of it but actually the the flip side of that doesn't really get exposed to the same extent so I think there's also a bit of a negative bias because for some reason we love stories about everything going wrong and not so many stories about look at how this outcome worked perfectly and these people have very happy with it and it's all gone brilliantly there are many fewer of those or at least they don't seem to reach people's psyche in yeah. the same way I, it's so, I, this is such an interesting topic it's so fundamental i feel like we could talk probably all afternoon and into the evening um there's a lot i mean there's so much more to to, to dig into um i kind of we i, I definitely have want to have you back to, to to let us know how red star is getting on particularly with that that study um and some some findings that i'm sure you're going to have along the way um let's just wrap up though uh if people want to find out more about red start um we'll put it in the show notes but where where uh, where can they go just to find out more so red start at redstarteducate.org is our email address and you can look us up on the website there as well um, brilliant and everything about us is there fantastic we'll put, obviously we'll put that in the show notes and um, thank you so much sarah for taking time to tell us about it obviously it's such an interesting topic uh and yeah super keen to hear more about it um obviously for thank you for listening to the mouthy money podcast everybody uh we're on apple on spotify and obviously you can find everything on mouthymoney.co.uk as well uh thanks again sarah and we'll see you all soon nice to see you, you ed bye for now bye bye